All right, we are lit, good sir. Welcome back to another episode of Cultivated Ignorance. I am Will, the host. I'm Mike, the fragrant host that's on mute right now, but I'm not, not anymore. Hey, what's up? Super, super wrong. <laughs> um, this week, we are joined by our dope guest, Andrew. I don't want to put, mispronounce your last name, <laughs> so I'm going to let you say it. <laughs> Gadgetar. Gadgetar. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, completely unprepared for the show. I'm sorry, Andrew. With the unprofessional. Yeah, I, I was late. So, um, yeah, man. So we are joined by uh, amazing actor, director, uh, martial arts choreographer, whole bunch of other things. He got so many titles. Whole He's lot so of gang shit stuff. is what his titles are. <laughs> <laughs> um, we actually linked up with him uh, after we saw the advanced screening of uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, amazing film starring uh, Daniel Cook. I can't pronounce it. I'm bad at names. Oh, but I can pronounce Lakeith Stanfield, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man. So we we all saw that uh, movie. Uh, very impactful. We're going to be talking about that today. Uh, we're also going to be doing an interview with uh, Andrew, you know, just talking about his, exper- his experience in film um, and a whole bunch of other stuff, as well as uh, helping bring Sundance and things like advanced screenings down to the Carolinas. Um we're also going to be talking about the revolution. You know, Mike's a, uh, he's a, Mike's a what? He's a, <laughs> what, 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 go say some dumb shit. Go ahead. I'm not, I'm not going to put a label on it. Just know they're looking for you. Um, <laughs> um yeah, we're also going to talk about revolution or reform because, uh, me and Mike are on different, different sides of the spectrum on this one. Um, but yeah, man, as always, please don't hesitate. Please don't hesitate to follow our Patreon. Only five dollars. You're not supposed to. <laughs> so it's only five dollars. No, like, you supposed to. <laughs> you supposed to say it's only five dollars, and then I was supposed to say it's only five dollars. Our Patreon is only five dollars. Only five dollars. Okay. <laughs> um, we, we got a lot of exclusive things on there. Uh, we recently uh, did our review of what was it, Mike? Oh, American oh, Skin. American Skin. Yeah, exactly. It's, you forgot about it because it's forgettable. <laughs> forgettable. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're we're gonna be doing a lot more on there. Uh, we're really getting active on there. So uh, we yeah. we're gonna be doing this last season of Insecure whenever it happens. Uh, stop saying sad, it. Sad boy. Um, sad boy season. Right. So, uh, yeah, be sure to sign up. It's only $5. We got a bunch of different tiers, but all we ask for is the five. So. I, I will tell y'all, as bad as American Skin was, that, that review was hilarious. Like, that Bro, was we had so much fun thing. doing it. <laughs> I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like mediocrity, like like a film being just mediocre, is just, yeah. a, it, it, it might be worse than it just being bad. It's like, right, man, you right. can write it off, but you got to, with mediocre stuff, you got to super yeah. break down, like, why this is just a waste of your time. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, 
so yeah, Andrew, man. Oh uh, yeah, we met uh, Andrew. Well, Mike's met him before, but we caught up with him outside of the screening uh, for Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, brother. All right. Well, I guess first off, first and foremost, I'm a, a dad of four now. Um, got one in college and one that just came. Um, uh, I, I work hard. I work hard for the kids. <laughs> but uh, I, um, as you said before, I'm a, um, I'm an accredited producer with the PGA. Um, I am a director, a writer, um, an actor. Same as all the other filmmakers out there on the independent circuit that's, that has to wear multiple hats uh, in the film-related world. Um, I also am the co-founder of Freedom Festival International Film Festival and the co-founder of Carolina Film Network, a nonprofit organization right here in the Carolinas uh, based out of you know uh, Columbia, now West Columbia, where our office is. And I'm also the uh, co-founder of American Pit Fighting um, Academy and American pit fighting as a whole. So that's what I do. Okay. I'm a martial scientist and a filmmaker. <laughs> All the titles, bro. Um, <laughs> just for, like me and you have worked together. I know you from um, Rich. We used to work with Rich with Mama G. Shout out to Mama G. Mm -hmm. um, how did you learn, Mama, learn um, get to know Mama G anyway? Like, cause you know, she, she don't be making a lot of friends out here. Like, how did you get to know Mama G? <laughs> um, I actually knew her son first. Um, I knew her son first, and then I also uh, went to school. I went to high school with uh, one of her main uh, or most prominent students, uh, with uh, really two of them, with uh, Jake and with um, uh, Nathaniel. We all went to we all went to high school together, so I already knew them. I knew they studied uh, martial science already, um, and I also already heard about Mama G. And I finally met her um, at a fashion show. Uh, some years back, I met her at a fashion show. She was at a table. Uh, I think she was selling her books, her manuscripts, and um, and I got one. And I finally met her, and it was like it was it was all she wrote. Because from there, <laughs> it was just nothing but support, support, support. Yeah. And you know how Mama G is when she latch on to you. That's it. I was gonna say well, you got a skill, <laughs> you talented, and you can contribute. That is oh, it. It's a done deal. So absolutely. Uh, real quick, I know you say you're you're uh, heavily involved with martial sciences. Um, how did you, I guess, get involved with that yourself, and like, kind of how has that impacted your life as a whole? Ooh, well, I originally started martial arts when I was a kid. Uh, your typical karate, taekwondo. I did hapkido when I was younger. I was living overseas in Germany. Uh, my family was all in the military. Uh, I was in the military myself. I had a, a stint where I didn't do really anything. Um, I competed in some basic stuff when I was in the military. And from there, I did uh, Marine Corps martial arts. I was in the Marines. And uh, when I got out, you know, I just, I got into law enforcement, been law enforcement for like 14 years. And I learned a lot more on the street about what I could apply from the things that I learned, and I learned real quick, you can't really apply a lot of that, a lot of the stuff that you do in the dojo, or a lot of the stuff that you do that's formal, or this, that, and the third. When you when you're going up against a lot of people at once, or or just you know life in mm -hmm. general, dealing with you know uh, life-threatening situations or elevated threat levels. So I kind of adapted uh, to my situation, and I took all the things that I could 
consume of reality and combine that with some of the formal things and then I partnered up with uh, who was at the time my vice president of my company when I owned a security company. And um, we basically, he polished it up. The other half of American pit fighting, he polished it up with all his knowledge base. He had the same mindset of, of you know, taking the reality based part of, you know, what which on the street level versus formalized martial science. And we combine them together to create what American pit fighting is now. So I've been in it for a long time. Uh, I would say off and on, but more so, more consistently when I was younger. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I got older, it was it was all experience, like almost a hundred percent experience. Word. That's what's up, yo. So how did you even get into film? Like, how, was that all? Do you just kind of dip in the dab and? different things well actually the funny the funny thing is is that you know uh when you become when you start to become successful at something there's a lot of haters out there and what? you know i have some haters out there and uh you know i i you know i'm human and i'm black and i live in south carolina so you know it is what it is and uh from there i had to think about a new path i got hired my company got hired to do um, fight and stunt choreography for a feature film. And we did the fight and stunt and tactical choreography for that. I provided all the weapons, all the uniforms and the expertise and, the, and everything else that we could do for it. And from there, it was during that transition where I was stopping doing the, the contract security work and I needed to change career paths. And, you know, I looked at all the resources that I had, I looked at the education that I had. And I realized, you know, this is something that I can really enjoy. And they're doing it ever since. And again, like I said, teamed up with people like my, my two business partners. Well, at the time, it was um, just my co-founder, Christian Manganelli. But then um, after that project, that first project, then we um, teamed up with our third part of our trifecta, which is Faith Creech. And ever since, we've just been putting the work in. I love that because I think it highlights the importance of just finding your circle like of people with similar interests and want to see you win. And then we talking about with, with that before the show, like how competition is a good thing, but like competition, when competition starts to trump like community, then ain't nobody winning out here. Like it just becomes, like you said, a, a room full of haters on each other, <laughs> just kind of outshine each other and it, nobody wins that. Sure. Absolutely. We got so a, we we a former... Um, no, I was going to say we had um, one of our other co-founders that originally co-founded uh, Carolina Film Network. Uh, he said it best. You know, we did a we did a whole monthly meeting about it uh, with the film community. It was it was titled uh, "Collaboration Over Competition," and I mean, like, when you can wake up and see the value of collaboration over competition, you'll stop doing this or this and you'll start going up. You know what I'm saying? Right. And that's exactly what we did. And that's exactly why we are where we are. Sounds like a simple concept, but I think a lot of people still struggle to grasp it, but hopefully things get better with time. Of course. Of so, course. Yeah, man. Well, let's get into this Judas and the Black Messiah, man. Like me and Will, I mean, we used talking to you too after the, after the thing, but me and Will was like visibly shaking like after watching this movie, right? I'm going to lie to you. Like, oh yeah, that's facts. We were shook. Um, what role did you play in kind of getting this film, um, this screening that just happened was through Sundance here in Columbia, South Carolina? 
Yeah, like a lot. When I saw when I saw when I got the opportunity to watch it, I was like, oh, in Columbia, I ain't got to go to LA. I was like, okay, let's do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what role did you make? Uh, did you play in making that happen? So, um, I have to backtrack just a little bit to kind of connect the dots, but. Um, Sundance initially reached out to the Luminal Theater, Curtis Francis John with the Luminal Theater, because, you know, there were certain people that were already involved with Sundance, and the Luminal Theater's original, um, or, or their place of origins was in Brooklyn, New York, between New York and, and here, and so he's our, people have already seen, you know, the work that he does for the community, or that they do for the community, and things of that nature, and that's what what I believe led them to, you know, connecting those dots. As far as the dots here in Columbia, um, I uh, I did a I spoke at an event at the library, um, and I was a, I was a guest speaker with um, Dan Rogers from the uh, South Carolina Film Commission, and um, and Curtis was in the audience. And after we after the event, you know, he came out and he spoke to me. We exchanged contact information, and he basically was like, you know, we should. So I'd love to work with you in the future or, or you know, collaborate or something. And um, when there was a, he was, he was doing another pro, uh, project where he uh, has his pop-up theater, like a uh, drive-in pop-up theater. And they were looking for uh, another location that's in the Northeast Columbia, which is basically the heart, the heart of the black community in Columbia. One of the, one of the good spots for that is in the Northeast side right where right where spot spotlight cinemas capital eight um is and so he um you know i just I, I simply just connected the two together and was just like you know here's the information you know and they did all the work you know he did all the work they did all the work so from there they built a relationship with the theater and like i said i already had a running relationship with the theater uh with our with our um production uh company and with uh our film festival and um we you know we just all kind of came together he put together this this uh, uh somewhat of a committee or advisory board however you want to describe it for sundance we it was a bunch of producers people different film festivals or people that work with him already with his company and um other people that are like movers and shakers in south carolina you know um and north carolina and just connecting all of those dots, you know, once it was, once all the people were in place, it was a wrap. It was nothing but great minds thinking alike. You know what I'm saying? And, and we went, we ran from there. Dope, man. That's what I'm talking about. Like, you know, you know, you got to go well. No, I was just going to say, um, while I am, while I was shocked that, uh, you know, Spotlight Theater, well, first off, someplace in Columbia, had you know anything to do with Sundance? That was first off shocking. And then it was Spotlight was really shocking um, because you know like you know things that I you just don't expect to see things at like small time theaters like that, you know. Um, and the fact that Spotlight was still surviving during the pandemic was shocking. So like all those all those factors, you know what I mean? It just uh, it just made me feel good about you know, uh, the situation as a whole, seeing that we are still like thriving and getting these, getting this different type of uh, art that we normally don't receive early or whatever, get, just getting this exposure was uh, really good. And I think really good for the city and black folk in general. 
So that's all I was gonna say. One of the reasons why they one of the reasons why they've been able to help uh, or or to do that is because since day one they've been all about the community. They have a, the the theater has a partnership um, with the um, with the church that runs that entire plaza, you know, and they work together with some of the programming and as far as like the community, independent filmmakers, you know, uh, independent theaters, uh, a pop up theaters like Curtis. You know, that's why we're, we're able to do stuff like that because, you know, they're all about community. And, you know, a lot of these other theaters, you got to go through corporate offices galore just to get a no in the long yeah. run anyway. You know what I'm saying? So that, yeah, but, yeah you're right. But Capital H, <laughs> great people, man, great people. And I would love to hear y'all's thoughts on this, but like, well, my worst fear was, because I, mean, I was anticipating this, fear, this movie since last year. And then the pandemic hit, and then they literally was like still previewing it, but they didn't have any release date on it at all. So I was like, damn, bro, what's this shit gonna get lost in the mix? Like, I feel like this whole thing right here just highlights how like significant it is that this movie didn't get lost in the midst of the pandemic when it can easily because one from what I heard, um, Shaka King, who's the director, already had a hard enough time trying to get the movie um, you know, produced in the first place. Apparently, Warner Brothers didn't take it to it right away. And Andrew, so you know more about that than me. But uh, he had a hard enough time to get the movie out. Anyway, even with the, the all-star cast, even with it being so brilliantly made, he still had a hard time putting it out. So, like, I was scared it was going to get lost in the mix in this whole pandemic in the first place. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's um it's kind of a double-edged sword when it comes to uh, black films. And when it comes to independent theaters, you know, they, they're, they're fighting so many battles, even, even without a pandemic, they're already fighting so many battles, you know, like, and like I said, with that specific theater, I know personally that, you know, they struggle with even getting certain films shown at that theater, just because of where it is, you know, like you got these big time Marvel movies and stuff like that, where they have to literally you know, fight to get them in their theater just to show it to the community. You know what I'm saying? And as far as the, the filmmaking side of it, uh, the produce, the producing and directing side of it, all those things, like, you know, especially, especially during the pandemic, you know, when you're talking, when you're talking to different distributors and all this other kind of stuff, you have to think about where we are as a country right now. All these other platforms that otherwise would not have given us, you know, as much as they're given or highlighting as much as they're highlighting now because of the current climate in, in, in the nation, you know, now you have, you see things like Netflix and Amazon Prime and stuff like that having certain sections for people of color or for black films and stuff like that. Whereas before, you didn't see that. It's, 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 a, it's a double-edged sword. You know, there's opportunists everywhere. So, you know, it's, 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 noted, it's notable to say that, you know, the struggles, the struggles that they face are not uncommon, you know, for their, dem for their demographic. It's not uncommon. But, and, the, and again, the pandemic only makes it worse. But right. it's also, you know, you kind of got to get in where you fit in at times. Uh, like I said, we about to get into this movie because we about to start the revolution. So we ain't got to worry about this kind of stuff no more. Ain't that right, Will? We about to burn all this shit down. Um, 
Yeah, man, let's go ahead and get into thoughts on the movie because I would love to just hear what y'all thought about the movie in general. And I know I think Dad's gonna throw up a uh, this website, this uh, <laughs> this review from the Guardian that Andrew has a lot of thoughts on. Um, <laughs> but what were y'all general thoughts on the movie, man, after watching it? Um, my general thoughts, I I really enjoyed the movie. I thought uh, Daniel Kaluuya uh, had a great performance. Um, I don't know, man. I'm kind of off and on about Lakeith Stanfield, but uh, he was good enough. Eh, I just ain't feeling him all the time. But um, well, yeah, because man, he was like his normal acting self. Like Lakeith just has like a like a set way of acting. About to say, I, I feel like he plays himself with just different jobs. Like, <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, man. The movie was the movie was very good. Uh, I wish it would. I wish there were at parts. I wish it made you feel it a little more, like the heartache and the struggle a little bit you more. You feel the heartache? I mean, at the end, I did, but like I wanted them. Like I told you before, I wanted them to show him getting shot in the head. Like I, like oh, I felt man. like that. That graphic image should have been seen. No, uh, bro, I don't get on that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, the movie was really good overall. I, I think it deserves uh, all the praise. Hmm. What do you think, Andrew? I'm as a filmmaker, you know, I I gotta be honest with y'all. Every single movie that goes into that theater, I watch three times. Every last one of them. The first time I watch it just to enjoy it. The second time I watch it to critique it. And the third time I watch it to study it to see what how the directing was, how the camera angles are, how the acting was, how everything is um, through that lens. And this being the first time that I've seen it, I I kind of had took all of those elements and did it all at one time. So I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. As a director myself, you know, there were certain elements that, you know, uh, I ain't gonna say I would have done differently because every director, you know, portrays, you know, that film in the eyes, that, in the lens that they want you to, to, to receive it in. So, you know, for that, you know, I, I loved it. I loved a lot of the directing. I had certain parts of it that just that really caught my attention. Um, and then again, doing a little bit of research about the film itself and the background about it. You know, I think that it's, it's great to see Fred Hampton Jr. and Deborah actually on set, you know, giving their insight and making sure that there's authenticity in the story um, in addition to whatever theatrical embellishments that could have been there. Um, but I also think that, you know, if you come into, if you come into watching this film and you have not done any research on Fred Hampton or Bill O'Neill or Deborah or anything, any other elements about what was going on in that time, and you're just watching this as a movie, as a black history movie, biopic, or what have you, then you're going to enjoy it. But you have to you you're going to have to you're going to have to take your own feelings into account when it comes to certain elements of the film just kind of like what he was saying as far as i wanted to see him get shot like that would have been real powerful but then at the same time you have other people that are looking at the film that's like this is what i saw i thought it was powerful enough it already got me that part may not have been necessary you know it was implied and we know the facts, like we know what happened. 
it's not like we were surprised that it happened because we know the facts. You know, this wasn't just a leader of that time. He's a leader. He's a historical leader for all of us. You know what I'm saying? So it really depends on the lens that you're looking at. But me personally, from the first viewing that I saw it, I really liked the film. I really liked the film. I was, I'm interested in knowing like what parts stuck out to you most in a good way and in a bad way. Um, but I just real quick, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. And see, I go back and forth from this all the time, but I think, like you said, the family actually being involved with the production of the movie makes a world of difference. Because like me and Will debate about this all the time, but I feel like it's so easy to make this type of film and just kind of capitalize off of black trauma. And be like, you know, this is the time that we're all talking about how bad it, how hard it is to be black. So let me make another, you know, piece about some black revolutionary getting murdered or something else about racism or something else about, you know, black women being done wrong. It's so easy to make something like that and just kind of just use that as the marketing point for a, for a movie that really doesn't have any heart. And just wants to, like I said, just get in on jumping on the train of we're all talking about black trauma now. So to have a movie... While this is about a very traumatic event, um, the, the movie have the actual family involved and they actually just feel like from start to finish, feel like it actually cares about the story. And I was like, I remember like looking up Shaka King, like I was, cause I haven't heard of Shaka King before this. And I was like, I pray he black. I pray this ain't no white dude out here trying to make <laughs> a Fred Hampton movie. And thank God he was black and then see, you know, Ryan Coogler be the producer and everything. You could just feel like they just thoroughly cared about this. And then, of course it's still entertainment. But like they very much cared about what they were putting out and the story that they were, you know, trying to retell to a lot of people who have probably never heard it before. But um, but yeah, what did stick out, st stick out to you most, like in a good way and a bad way? I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me uh, was definitely now understanding that I actually do have a law enforcement background, you know, um, and not just a, a, you know, not just a current law enforcement background, but like. You know, I, I, I know a little bit about the historical ways that, that policing has been done, not just from books and stuff, but from a law enforcement perspective. Uh, with that being said, I also am Black. I also have a Black perspective. And I have a reality perspective of knowing organizing um, bodies and how when people look at them as militant, versus the reality of the people that are within it. That is something that really stuck out to me. The way that law enforcement um, interacted with you know, the black people that was in the film, as well as the way that these same um, people were portraying these roles, you know, they showed fear. It wasn't like, you know, and this, again, this, this, pay, this, this uh, pays mad respect to the directing, you know, there's, you can visibly see and you can actually feel and empathize with these characters. Like these characters did not look militant. Like the ones that did look militant were not from the same chapter that Fred Hampton was. was. You know what I'm saying? You had people that was in this chapter that didn't look buff. They weren't big. They weren't, you know, <clears throat> tall. They weren't, they looked like normal people, normal yeah. people that were in the community, you know what I'm saying, that were driven and had a purpose. And when it came down to it, even in the line of fire, uh, um, um, 
you know, they, they were real and they were human. And I like that. That really stuck out to me. You know, people being scared, people being shook, you know, people checking up on each other. Are you okay? You know, um, they weren't mad at each other for fleeing or for trying to get to a place where they can be protected or anything like that. And then like how the community came together, you know, even after certain things happened in the film, I don't wanna give up too much of the film, but even as the community came together to be there for one another, like that is the black community. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like it showed a lot of realness about the black community and how we, how we are there for each other and how we are brothers and sisters keepers. You know, and that, that definitely stood out to me. And I think that it added to the authenticity of the film. And I ain't gonna lie to you, man. It made me think about a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of stuff from how I grew up, a lot of stuff about my family, my personal family, and the way that I would be in certain situations as a father, you know, trying to be an activist or trying to, you know, uh, you know, be there for my people, but still have to face the reality of, you know, what I'm sacrificing for my family as well. So like all of that stood out to me, man. I think it just, like I said, it made it, it made it more of a powerful film for me. For sure, dude. I love that you highlighted the, uh, how people just look normal because I love that the, how much time the film made to just focus on the Black Panthers as a whole. Like it wasn't just about, you know, William O'Neill, it wasn't just about Fred Hampton. It took a lot of time just to show the Black Panthers in general. And like you said, how they interact with one another, um, looking out for one another, how they act about one another. I think the film just, like I said, it really had a, and it intentionally was like, I don't want this to just be like some action suspense, blockbuster th thriller starring Fred Hampton. Like it wanted to show you, tell you an actual story that we don't get told enough. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so I know you had thoughts on um, some other people reviewing the movie um, at the at, at the Guardian and stuff. Why? Um, I think <laughs> I kind of I kind of want to hear y'all's response first. <laughs> I made notes. I'm not gonna lie, I made notes. I didn't want to skip a beat, man. <laughs> Do you have any particular thoughts on that, Will? I just skipped through it. Uh, I read the whole thing, but I didn't I didn't see anything. I didn't I didn't dissect it like he did. <laughs> I ain't gonna lie to you. We both probably didn't. I will say it did speak to another point that I wanted to touch on, which is how, you know, stories like this just either aren't told to us or just aren't told accurately. And how that molds how we grew up and stuff. How we just, me and Will talking at the theater, like how much different would we be if like we were told actual stories of Fred Hampton, of Huey Newton, of Bobby Seale, like, how these stories were just purposely skipped over like completely omitted um and how much different and so and then like i said like here how when they are told from a certain perspective they're just wrong so i'm sure you can elaborate a lot a lot more thoroughly than we can and the, I got the first thing that's crazy about this is that uh, the day before uh, we saw the film, you know, I was livid uh, because of, of something that happened in my daughter's school with her lessons. And this has always been something that, that somewhat bothers me. Um, I've not been ignorant to it. It's just 
part of it is reality and another part of it is just it just sucks. I mean, to, to put it as plainly as I can, it just sucks. But, um, you know, I think about when I was in, in middle school and elementary school and high school and I was taught black history and stuff like that. And I, and I think about the way that our instructors were not always black. Our teachers were not always black. For the most part, they weren't. Um, I was very fortunate when I was in elementary school that my teachers were black. Um, but when I got to middle school and high school, all the history that I learned was, was about white people, you know? And it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that the way that the education system is, is here in America, you know, there, is, there, there are those pockets that aren't full, there are those voids that aren't uh, filled with what we definitely should be hearing. Um, and I definitely saw that with this, um, with this article. I also saw it, like I said, with my daughter in her school where her teacher is actually telling her entire class that black people prefer to be called colored. What, wait, wait. That, yeah. Wait, wait. What are we talking about? It, yeah. It's, Exactly. Oh, your grandma was teaching this is back what, in the 1950s? This, this is literally what I was dealing with the day before I saw Judas and the Black Messiah. So when I saw Judas and the Black Messiah, and then I seen this, this report, it's just some of those same feelings come back. You know, it's like, it's how, how to me, and I might be bugging, which I don't think I am. But I mean, I don't understand how a white teacher can tell my black child what black people prefer to be called. And it literally came out of her mouth that black people would not like to be called black or African-American, but that they would rather be called colored. But how old is the teacher? And I, I, I don't know. It don't even matter. She's 90 something, then I got to give her a pass. Oh, she's 90. Right no, now. she's not. I believe okay. she's my age or close to it. Oh shit, um, no. Which might feel like 90 at times, but that's not what it is. <laughs> but uh but when I read this when I read this article, there's a couple things again that just you know, like I had to compare. I had to compare, you know, my again, like my daughter one of my daughter's lessons, um, they were asking questions as far as, you know, which slaves felt like they had the better job or was um Nat Turner, a villain or a hero. And I'm like, you know, th these, are, these are coming from places that are not of the place that we come from. You know what I'm saying? And when I read this article, there's certain things in here that stood out to me and I got to point it out. And I'm not speaking badly of, of the guy who wrote it or anything like that because he gave the film praise. He gave the film praise. He gave you know, exactly what he saw and he responded to it in the way that he did. But one thing that I noticed was that in the very last paragraph that he wrote where he's comparing Judas and Messiah and the Last Supper like that they were having in, in, um, in his house before, you know, before they died um, to the Bible, you know what I'm saying? 
And he did that in more detail coming from a personal perspective than he did the rest of the entire article. The rest of the entire article was basically him saying specifically what he saw in the film. He didn't back any of it up with facts. He didn't compare anything of it um, with you know, any um, historical accounts. He literally took it for face value. And for me, as a person who's written reviews on films, I make sure that I take the time to do my research on the filmmaker, my, re my research on their work, my research on the subject matter, especially if it's something that's factual or if it's a period piece, um, you know, and I feel like that these are things that the audience really needs to hear because in my eyes, anybody can go watch the film and see the same things that you wrote about. But what else do we need to know? Like what else should the audience know? And the extra things that was said in here that, you know, comes from that place that's not from where we come from is certain things such as, and I, like again, I said, I wrote down some notes, um, that one of the things that, that really kind of bothers me was that he compared um, Fred Hampton to Napoleon Bonaparte. Hmm. His confidence of Napoleon to Fred Hampton, which in my eyes is somewhat of an insult. Yeah. Because Somewhat, Napoleon yeah. was not confident. He was a tyrant. He exactly. was a, 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 a self-loathing tyrant. You know? Exactly. And his, he didn't have confidence. He was power hungry. He literally dubbed himself an emperor. Like, right. that is not Fred Hampton. This is the shit that, that is not... That is <laughs> terrible comparison. I'm looking at it now. I'm you reading. can't... I mean, like, when I, as soon as I saw it, I, I, I was like, what? How can you compare Fred Hampton's confidence? Because, and that's another thing is like, it wasn't as, he didn't, it wasn't confidence. He was, it was determination. Like he, he was determined to fight for his people, all of his people. You know what I'm saying? All of the communities, the oppressed, you know, the put down, the, the, all of the, the oppressed, the downtrodden, everything. You can't, you, that's literally the exact opposite. Of Napoleon. This is exactly what I'm talking about. And this is this is a perfect this, segue to the next segment. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, but it's just it's like, but you know, it's it's um it's it's certain things like that, and certain things that you know just knowing, I don't even think based off of what I read, I don't think that he realized that Deborah and Fred Hampton Jr. was there to maintain authenticity in the story and everything else, because, you know, if he, if he knew that or did a little bit of research and maybe saw some interviews with them, he would have seen, you know, the whole thing about, you know, uh, Fred Hampton being shy. Like he, he made it a point in the article to say that, you know, that he was shy, you know, with, with Deborah and stuff like that. I'm like, no, he wasn't necessarily shy. Because he kept going back to his stare. That he had like this confident stare and stuff like that. I'm like, no, it's it's not a stare. It's purpose. You know what I'm saying? The man spoke and lived with purpose. Whenever he was with whenever he was with Deborah, you know, he had a chance to be human and find happiness for himself. You know what I'm saying? And and just like he even said in the film, he's like, if I'd have known more about 
your current situation or our current situation, I would have knew even more of why I needed to live, being locked up. It's like, these are gems in the film. And he's not highlighting that. The only thing he can say is that he was shy and he had a glaring stare. Like, no, it was much more to it than that. You know, and like I said, it, it, and there, uh, I, I'm just going down my little notes. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I'm, this is my last one. This is my last one. Um, but he made it. He made it seem like um, that um, Bill O'Neill was like thrilled to be taken out for a stake on right. the FBI's dime, and I didn't see it like that at all. He 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 kind of he kind of pacified it like as if it was like he was a, a happy Negro to be in the to get a stake. Yeah, but if yeah. you look at the way he was dressed, if you look at everything else, and if you actually did your research on stuff like that, and you see the guilt that he had lived with, and all of this stuff like that, like even in the film, like he wasn't eating steak like that with him. It was a formality. He was very uncomfortable in the situation he was in. He was only in it because of he, was, he was a victim of circumstance too. That and the fact that he was an opportunist. There's good sides and bad sides to the whole thing, but without that research, and you just say that he was thrilled to eat a steak and this man and have his bourbon in his house and stuff like that, then you really missed the picture. See this, for lack of a better word, this is shit white people be doing, bro. Like, this is shit like <laughs> when we leave it up to white opportunists and white historians and white educators, when we just leave it up to them entirely. And I'm not saying this is like all malintent because I don't even think they know what, they, what they're doing at the time when this happens. But like, when you have somebody who's completely disconnected from a, a group of people, when you have that, those people tell those people stories, like, it's bound to go wrong. Like, you can't, you can't, nothing good can come out of that. And so. I mean, this is the first, this is the first thing that black people, because I ain't going to lie, there's a lot of black people out there that do not know the Fred Hampton story, that do not know about Bill O'Neill. They do not know the details of any of this stuff. So this is literally, in every sense of the word, one of the first forms of education people are getting on this story. And right. it's coming from this source, which right. is not doing it as much justice. And just like you said, like he may not, and I'm not, that's why I said, I'm not discrediting the writer as a yeah. writer or just yeah. that and third, because again, he don't know. He just don't know. But at the same time, it needs to be noted, especially like when you have talkbacks or interviews or stuff like that with black people who've seen this or people who understand, you know, after the fact, then people need to be listening to these conversations. This is what they need to be listening to. Look at that. Look at what's written in that for face value for what it is. But at the same time, you have to go back and do, you know, be educated by, by, by reliable sources and by reliable information. You know what I'm saying? And I apologize for cutting you off, man. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. You're absolutely fine. Because we got to get into what me and Will be fighting about anyway. So I feel like um, but we'd be having the same complaints, the same grievances, um, the same cries for justice and mercy and equality and equity. Uh, we've, these ain't nothing new. Like, 
anything that we're talking about right now is this has been talking about you know look all throughout history since we first came to this country i mean all throughout history we've been having these conversations um quote-unquote conversations um it feels like to me like I don't know if black people ever really see or feel ever really feel truly liberated without a true revolution. Like, do you feel like we can reform our way into black people feeling truly liberated? Or does it take like a full blown, we all need to be on some Fred Hampton shit and burn the shit down? Like, because Will said he trusts Joe Biden, Joe Biden for everything. I do not fucking trust Joe Biden at all. <laughs> This is, this is actually an ongoing conversation uh, between me, colleagues, and my, my household and everything like that because I can't tell you how many films that I've seen and dissected um, that are, are Black films and, and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And I honestly feel, and again, I got to look back at, at like people like Nat Turner, you know what I'm saying? where people can, can see certain things as, you know, uh, not necessarily a necessary evil, but, you know, you have to look at what a revolution looks like. And you have to look at the expectancies of what that revolution looks like. And personally, um, I feel that the only way that our revolution actually could be a revolution it's just like just like the saying goes, it will not be televised. Our revolution cannot be dictated by somebody else. Somebody can't look at the Black Lives Matter movement and say they're revolting. They can't look at the actions that we do as black people and say they're revolting or they're insubordinate or they're this or they're that or whatever. Like, no, I'm in complete control. Of my of of my liberation, I look at my own household, and I gotta live. I gotta make sure that my kids are not being taught wrong. I gotta make sure that they be that me as a black father, as a single black father, that they know what a good black father looks like. So I need to be involved with my children. You know what I'm saying? Like education is everything. We were denied education, you know, and just like I said. Um, people like Nat Turner doing what he doing what he did. He proved the South wasn't what it. They were dictating that it was. You know what I'm saying? Like this, it's not no. These ain't no uh, cool jobs. Or this job is better than that job, bitch. It's all slavery. Don't none of us want to be here. You know what I'm saying? And there were people that were pacifying. And they still, to this day, pacify what, 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 what's been going on. To me, I won't feel completely liberated or free or reparations or any of that shit until we own something. So we don't own shit in this country without it being taken away, for the most part. But we have to educate ourselves as far as what ownership looks like. We got to look at leaders that are out there showing us what ownership looks like, because that is the one thing that is the one thing that, you know, this government or this country can't take away from you is, is what you own. I own my mind. I own my heart. I own my soul. 
You know, I, that, that belongs to me. You can't take that from me. You can't take my spirit away from me. You can't take my mind away from me. That belongs to me. Now, tangible things such as property, wealth, you know, what you see, what we were building upon, you know, in Tulsa and things of, of, of like that, you know, like that's independence. Independence is a threat. And it, to me, as long as, as long as there's a White House, it don't matter who's sitting in, sitting in the chair or whatever the case may be, it's a White House. Ain't no Black House, ain't no Native American House, it's somebody else's house. That shit don't belong to us. It never was meant to belong to us. So why, why I didn't say why, but in my, in my eyes, it, it's, it goes well beyond that. Our advocacy is better served through our actions than through just what we say. And even more so, the people who call themselves allies, their advocacy goes more with their actions than what they say. You know, and I look at, I look at things that I, and I keep myself quiet. I, I cannot stand politics. I can't stand politics. You will not hear me talk about politics on the regular. You will not hear me talk about religion on the regular or anything like that. But what you, what you will hear me talk about is uplifting my fellow man, period. And like I said, I look at, I look at things like that and I look at certain things like a lot, things that people don't even realize are here. There's an African village right here in South Carolina that the U.S. can't touch, that they don't own. And they got their own king. They got their own education system. They got their own governing everything. Where is that? It can't be touched. That? It, it's, um, I want to say it's going towards the low country, but I, I can't, I can't remember Yemisee. Sp- it's Seabrook, South Carolina. Hmm. Wow. There you go. I can't, it, it's, it, it's something that as soon as I came across of it, it actually kind of gave me hope. A little bit better hope, because I'm like, you know, it's things like that, that people need to realize is where our strengths lie. Like, that is powerful. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people that don't even know it exists. But they can contribute to it. They can contribute to its growth. You know, and, and it's, 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 it's things like that, like that type of wealth. Wealth ain't got nothing to do with money. It ain't got nothing to do with money. We can all, we can all make money and still have to pay taxes. We can all make money and, it, and, it owe, yeah. and we owe it to somebody else in some shape, way, fashion, or form. You know, and um, I, I follow people like Killer Mike. You know what I'm saying? Building that wealth, building that growth. You know, and if and anybody who can contribute to it, to the knowledge base and to the education side of it and stuff like that, the more we can grow to become more independent um, without the dependency of other systems or anything like that, then the stronger we'll become. And that has nothing to do with the media. It has nothing to do with, with being televised or, you know what I'm saying? So I mean I have I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts and feelings on it, um, but again, like I said, personally on my personal journey, mine starts in my home. You got any thoughts on that, Will? Y'all voted Trump out. Y'all lost all hope. <laughs> he was gonna get us there. It was gonna be painful, 
but another four years of that motherfucker, we would have been, we would have been, we would have learned so much. Um, seriously though, um, I don't know, man. Like a revolution is nice and all, but I'm not willing to die. Like I'm not, I'm not about to risk my life. I'm not, about, I'm not about to be out here like that, you know. <laughs> I'm gonna try and work within this system, while it may not be the most effective way. Um, that's just where I'm at, man. I'm just real about it. Like I'm not going that far. Unfortunately, I'm gonna let you, I mean, gonna let Mike, I'm gonna let you lay it all out there on the line for me. <laughs> no, I mean I really appreciate the honesty, but like, like Andrew was saying, like. Because we follow Killer Mike pretty closely too. Like I'm a huge fan of him. I, I had the pleasure of meeting him. He's very dope people, and um, as like like you said, like you can ac- accumulate this wealth, you can ca- accumulate these assets, these materialistic assets. But if we're still working within this system, like you said, like they can change the rules. We've seen it time and time again. Now more blatantly than ever, them just changing the rules whenever they see fit. Like they can just change shit up. Um, and if the rules that they said don't work in their favor, like they have the power to overturn them back into their favor. Like as we speak right now, like Republicans are actively working to implement all this, that saying all that voter suppression that Stacey Abrams and all them were so hard to get rid of. They're actively trying to reverse that. Like as we speak, like they're actively writing new policies right now to reverse all that shit. So even by the next primaries, like they can probably take some of these States back. So it's like, I just don't be seeing like a way out of the shit without like a complete overturn. Uh, and yes, you do have to be willing to die. In my opinion, you have to be willing to sacrifice your life, your lifestyle, your, your possibly your even family. Uh, Cause I mean, we'll talk about it all the time. Like every, every true black liberation, every true black revolutionary has either been killed or disenfranchised to the point that they're completely defamed and irrelevant. And like I said, that's what I think that's what the conversation just ends up restarting again. Like, all right, back to square one. Um, we won rights, we won equality, we won justice. Like, and I just don't want like Will's daughter, who's my goddaughter, to have the same struggles when she gets older. Like, I don't want to see her in these same protests. You know what I'm saying? I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. I got a question for you. This is a legit question. Sure. Why why do y'all think the Constitution has not been rewritten. <laughs> because it keeps those in power in power. Do like, you think that do you think that they can rewrite the Constitution? I think if I don't do you think that the government has do, the power I mean, to rewrite can, the Constitution? They can do it. They, they could do it if they wanted to do it. I don't even know if it's, amendments on it. Right. I don't even know if I'm fighting for an amendment. I think I'm fighting for something new entirely. I think the Constitution is outdated. I mean, even the amendments are bullshit. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the answer right there. I mean, things gonna that's and that goes back to what I was. That's one of the sources of, of why I said what I said. You know, I mean, there's there's amendments that are written. There's a, there's laws that are written. There's things that are written. There's bills that are passed. You know, all these other kind of things that are done. There's absolutely nothing stopping the government from rewriting the way that this country is ran. Absolutely nothing stopping them. Exactly. Why haven't they done it? Because they don't want bipartisan it. approval? Like, that's bullshit. No, no. they don't want to. <laughs> no that's bullshit. It's not yeah. meant to. It's not meant to. 
and and I know like you like you said like as far as like being you know a revolution or you know overthrowing government or this that and the third people just ride it on the on the on the capital what happened are the laws changed no no are the people changed no you know what I'm saying I'm not saying that it was that it was I'm not saying that it was pointless, but what I am saying is that it's, 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 is it not a similar, you know, modus operandi? I mean, is it not, not, not the same, you know what I'm saying? Definitely not the same mindset at all. I'm talking about the actual action. Right. Because when that happened, there was a whole bunch of people that's been out there that's like, well, if those were black people that did that, you already know what would happen. And you're absolutely right, but at the same but at the same time, you know, impulsive actions, impulsive impulsive actions, never yield desired results. You know what I'm saying? They have to be calculated. I, I in my in my first film that I wrote and directed, I have a line in there that, you know, that it's it's I put it in there on purpose, but people don't people got to pay attention to certain things. Two lines. One is, you know, when you call yourself oppressed, or when you call yourself in a certain position of, you know, what, however you feel like this, that, and the third, or you feel famished or poverty stricken or this, that, and the third. If you go to other countries that are worse than you, how do you think they look at you? They look at you as privileged. Same color, same whatever. They look at you as privileged because you're here. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's, um, there's a certain, there's a right way to handle things and there's a wrong way to handle things. But again, with in, in addition to that, on that same in that same conversation in the line in that film, I said, you know, or the character says, you know, while y'all are sitting here writing, while y'all are sitting here showing your aggressions and being impulsive and this, that, and the third, what do you think they're doing? What do you think the KKK is doing? What do you think these other groups are doing? They're being calculated. They're sitting back and watching you and watching your mo your moves so that they can calculate how to do theirs. That's never stopped. It's always been that way. Yeah. It's been that way with the Willie Lynch theory and it's still going on today. Sitting back and letting you fuck everything else up while they sit back calculating and still gain control or still maintain control you know what I'm saying and that's something that's something that's always happened in this country and it always will and the only way that the only way in my and these are, again these are just my thoughts you know I am I am no I am nobody important to say whatever but these are my thoughts and like I said I honestly believe that that's what it's going to take is not for our actions of impulsive actions, but it's going to take our calculated actions of learning and educating ourselves, educating our communities, and understanding not just not just seeing how the how the wheels turn because we we we've been seeing how the wheels turn, but like now we need to learn how to how they built that engine, how they built the motor, how they built everything, because until we learn how to build on our own. We're gonna be riding the dune buggy. That ain't going nowhere. Not against no race car. 
But I had all this time to perfect. Yeah. Let me ask y'all this then. So with like the Black Lives Matter movement now being like nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, I don't know if y'all saw this, um, the nominated for Nobel Peace Prize, like, do you count that as a win as far as people acknowledging um, the cry for social you know, justice? Or is that does, does that do more to derail the actual fight towards true black liberation? Are you going? Are you going first? Um, for me myself, like I don't think the 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 real achievement was when you saw everybody else going out in the streets. Like this Nobel Peace Prize, it it don't mean much or nothing. It at least for me, it seems more. Um, it's just like them saying, oh, yeah, this this thing really exists. You know what I mean? But the achievement was when you had people flooding out into the streets and you had people, you know, uh, in a way organizing, you know, saying that, uh, you know, on, on a mass level around the world that, you know, social social injustices all over the United States, all over the world, da, 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 da. Um, you know, I, I think the Nobel Peace Prize is just kind of irrelevant. I mean, Trump was no nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, I think. So, like, whatever. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I feel that. Compar going back to comparing the comparison in the film between, like I said, Napoleon and uh, Fred Hampton, I can compare it to that. And the reason why I said that is because of the attitudes that Napoleon had of getting that prize, of wearing that crown that he didn't even really deserve, you know what I'm saying? But just having that crown in the face of everybody else that admires it or yearns for it or whatever the case may be, that's, that's, where, that's when people like that can identify that as an achievement versus Fred Hampton he wasn't, he wasn't fighting for no specific crown. The people crowned him who he was. You know what I'm saying? And he didn't, you know, he took, he took that and he, he used it the best way he knew how, the best way he possibly could. And, and that's what, like I said, going back to what you were saying, like the movement in the streets, on the front lines, the actions behind it and everything else, that's the, you know, seeing those numbers grow Seeing, seeing people marching side by side, you know what I'm saying? Creating that good trouble. That's the, that's the, that's the win. When people can not, and, I, and they don't need a, a, a prize to, to identify that. You know what I'm saying? I don't need a, as a dad, I don't need a, I don't need somebody to say I'm, give me a trophy to say I'm the world's greatest dad. I just need my kids to smile when I kiss them. You know what I'm saying? That's how, that's how I feel. I feel that. Like, it feels almost like a distraction almost. Like, a his is honorary thing that you can be proud of to kind of make you, to be like, we hear you. But, like, <laughs> and not that the Nobel Peace Committee has any control over the you know, government or anything, but, like, like a, we hear you, but we're not about to change shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what it felt like to me. Like, <laughs> we acknowledge. Like a, like a, like a boss. Like a boss giving you a, a dollar raise to shut you up. No, I'm tell you what it <laughs> but is. You want, but you want salary, bro? I, I never forget. It was like day two or three when Biden was in office, and they were like, "Oh, 
Biden begins talks about the about the Harriet Tubman twenty dollar bill again. I was like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't care at all. Get some shit. That's what I'm saying. It's just this like same old song, and it's like, when we gonna have enough? So, with all this, you know, with me talking all this revolutionary talk, but us collectively talking about how like the police, you know, the government, all these systems kind of oppress us, like. How do we go about like building this community that can live without those things? Like I was talking to um oh we were talking to Thaddeus about you know the fact that most neighborhoods, I don't know, I don't know too many people myself that know everybody in their neighborhood to the point that if someone broke in their house or like if they heard some gunshots, they would all come out to help that person. Like most people will kind of be like, Oh shit, they shooting. I'm getting in my bed because I don't know what's going on over there. Like, how do we build this like actual community? Because we use the word community a lot, but like also, we be fighting within these communities a lot. So it's like, how do we go about actually building the true, true communities? I don't think it's gonna be one big black community, but true communities. You got it. I ain't got the answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I have to. I have to look at it on a perspective of uh, psychology. I'm in. I'm in psychology. I'm. I'm um, starting to get my master's in psychology. So there's a little bit about certain aspects of, of behavior that I have to recognize. Um, and I'm not a psychologist, I'm just saying. Just from what I've studied, you know, I do believe that, again, there's power in education. You know, and I mean, I mean good, um, progressive education, productive education. Um, again, with the, between wealth, you know, there's, there's people there's people that, you know, come from the, the most gully hoods out there, you know what I'm saying? And they got plenty of money, but what do they know about investments? What do they know about making that money work for them? You know, what do they know about what their actions do for what happens to their children or how, how their children look at them and see everything that they do and they learn from what they do or they learn more from the streets than the education system that they don't agree with. You know what I'm saying? Like it really stems from education. If you want to change, if you want to change your communities, you have to let them know that they are one. You know what I'm saying? You can't tell two gangbangers that's, you know, one blue, one red, that, you know, they that they you you can't just tell them that they're in the same community because they're going to tell you, no, we're not. I'm blue or I'm red or whatever the case may be. But if you educate them as to why they actually are part of the same community and you look at those similarities and you can dissect that and go, you know, I'm here for both of y'all, you know, and just talking about like Mama G, man, Mama G's made some serious waves in that specific regard. And that comes from education taking the time to put yourself on the line for your own people. It's, it's, it's not just about, you know, being out there fighting for equality, you know, uh, on a systemic level, but it's also out there fighting for equality of peace of mind within our own communities. We have to teach each other that we exist for each other. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I honestly, I honestly feel that you can't, you can't build, you can't build without education. 
you, you, you just can't. You, you have to have a stronger foundation. And it's not to say that we don't have a, a strong foundation. We have a lot of foundations. But you have to unify those foundations into something that's more, more uh, workable or something that can be grown upon. You know, you gotta, you gotta sow those seeds. You gotta drop that knowledge. You know, I, I can't tell you how many, how many younger people out there that I've seen or that I've talked to that, you know, may have gone one direction and just as simple as me being a filmmaker changed their entire direction. Oh, like yeah. they look at something, they see something else. They see something else, an opportunity. You got too many kids out here saying, I'm doing this because I have to. I ain't got no other choice. If they don't know that they don't have another choice, how the hell are they going to believe any different? You have to tell them that they exist and that they exist in the same world that you do. So when I go and I see see young minds and stuff like that and I talk about film, that is one of the first things that I tell them. Because they ask me like, man, you know, what I got to do to get in the film? And I look at them and I go, guess what? You're hired. What? It's like that? Yeah, it's just like that. You want to do it? You want to better yourself? You want an opportunity? Guess what? You have one. And I give it to them. And they see a different light. And I may not be able to do that for everybody, but I've literally seen how it changes, how it changes young minds, how it changes minds in general, just to see that they exist in the same world and that they can't exist in the same world. So education is key. You can't do nothing without that foundation. So, so with, that being, with that being said, uh, people who come from poverty-stricken areas, um, you know, parents without much education themselves, maybe they don't have, you know, strong community leaders to, uh, you know, lean on. Where would, how, do, how would people without you know, a guide, find, find, find a way to this education. That's the that's problem it. right there. I think that's the, actually, I think that's the problem. You can't expect people that don't know to ask what the question, what you can't expect people that don't know what questions to ask, to ask the questions. You can't expect people to come to you for help if they don't know that it's there. It's our job, the ones who aren't poverty stricken or the ones who do have, you know, access to knowledge or access to something else. It's our job. It's our job to take the leap. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't have to do this. That is the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice for a person that is a human being is going out of their comfort level to go into someone else's discomfort. That is how I feel. In order for me to change the mind of a gangbanger, I got to go to his hood and not be scared to go. I got to look at them and look in their environment and say, you know what, guess what? I ain't got to go there like acting on high and mighty, like, you know, I'm better than you or anything like that. I can just go there on something humble and just be like, man, I acknowledge you. I love you and I appreciate you. And I'm not, I'm not here to look down on you. I'm here to acknowledge your greatness. Let me show you this thing that I'm doing. Do you want to be a part of it? That's it. Because again, going back to those behaviors and things like that, you have to understand how, they, how, how people respond and people react. That's one of the reasons why you know, the majority of black people don't seek therapy. They don't seek, you know, they don't seek a mental health professional. 
and there's and there's a reason for that because there's not enough for one there's not enough of us in the mental health profession for two there's not enough of us that are in the mental health profession willing to go to those communities and talk to those people directly and say look i can understand where you're coming from and i know nobody's giving you this information nobody's giving you access to understanding why you feel the way you do, right. why you've been conditioned to feel or act the way you do, or why our people or the people in your neighborhood act the way they do. Don't hate your fellow man, understand him. You know what right. I'm saying? So I feel like it's our job. It's our job. You can't, you, you can't, you, you don't, you can't go to the doctor with a problem that's hurting you on the inside and you don't know what to ask him. If you know, right. if you heard through the grapevine that when you get to your, your mid forties, as a man, you need to be asking, you know, when do I need to take a prostate exam? Or what do I need to be looking for signs of, you know, around my age? If you don't know to ask those questions, you're gonna be sitting there and the doctor's gonna say, okay, tell me what's wrong with you or what you're thinking about or how you feel. And he's gonna right. sit there and not say nothing. And that happens all too often. That happens all too often and it happens in our community every single day. You can't expect them to ask you the questions. You have to offer them the knowledge. I mean, I think you worded that absolutely perfect. Um, one of the most intimidating and enlightening experiences I ever had when I, when I started going to DJJ to talk to boys who were in there for murder, uh, gang violence, beating girls, drug dealing, all this shit. Like, these kids who have just seen so much at 13, 14 years old. And it's like, like you said, if they, if they don't, because a lot of people go in there, these settings and they think like, I'm going to teach them or I'm going to just put myself on this pedestal. and they like, you know, I'm going to be y'all's Jay-Z today. You know so I'm going to tell you all my accomplishments and I'm going to disappear and hope y'all do something with your life. But like you said, when you go, when you purposely go into these communities and I get like, it's, that's a hard thing to do. It's a very hard thing because mm -hmm. you have to know what you're talking about. You got to have that wherewithal to not, you know, say anything that might be more harmful than helpful. Um, and you got to, like you said, treat people like human beings. But like you said, it's we look at all these issues on such a systemic level. Like we just look at the president and we just look at the Senate and we just look at, you know, the government in general and say, y'all are my problem. But like when it comes to our neighbor, like we can't even start a conversation with them on the right foot and, and this means to just mend that relationship as it is like uh, some of how i see so many arguments between black men and black women about who's oppressing who more and who hates who the most and who doesn't care about who like you can't even have them discussion so you think we're gonna be able to talk on some uh, you know societal like some systemic shit like we got such a long way to go with those things and not saying that people aren't doing that work but like you said if you can't even get it on a human level like that systemic level is the last thing you need to be worried about right now yeah, I mean, even in the same, we talking about the same film. What what did Fred Hampton do in his own community of, of black folk, a very right. strong, you know, armed black folk? He went to their house. He went yep. to their house, and he didn't. When they when they spoke on him and they said certain things to him, talked down to him, try to rile him up, but instead of third, he didn't. He didn't flinch or nothing like that. He came there with a purpose. He 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 came in there with the expressed intent of unity and presenting information on a different level than they had presented, than they had right in front of them. 
And that's ultimately one of the reasons why he was able to unify people like that. You know what I'm right. saying? Those, that's, that's the fight. Those yeah. are the risks. You know what I'm saying? That, 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 need to be, that need to be made. I couldn't agree more, yo. Thank you so much, man. We could talk to you all night. Um, definitely want to have some time for you to um, shout out. This Will had any, I don't know if you have any extra thoughts on that, Will. I no, 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 I'm good. Okay. Um, yeah, if you got anything that's going on, man, feel free to shout it out. Um, you have the stage, my friend. <laughs> well, again, like I said, uh, we have our International Film Festival. It comes up in um, August, towards the end of August. Uh, where we purposefully place it in August because we highlight underrepresented groups as well as uh, veterans and women. And that is uh, in the same month, you have um, uh, Purple Heart Day and Women's Equality Day. And um, on top of that, just so if you want to get involved with that, follow Freedom Festival. Um, in addition to that, you have Carolina Film Network, which is our nonprofit organization uh, for all the Carolinas. Uh, for the film industry, we have a, a new uh, film society that we uh, just launched, and um, we'll be announcing more developments uh, coming soon, uh, very very soon. But um, uh, it's a, it's I'd, I'd look into it. It's not just another Facebook group; it's a legitimate five hundred one c three, and we are now collaborating with a lot of leaders in the community to bring forth, you know a lot of good collaborative efforts and educational opportunities for people coming up in this industry. Um, so follow us there. Um, and again, that's Carolina Film Network, npo.org. And, um, and yeah, every, every, everything else, man, just hit me up on social media. You're gonna have to show them how to spell it. Cause <laughs> they just look it. me up, they're gonna be able to find me. <laughs> yeah. Look, we got they're a smart gonna, audience. Don't be able to Honest, all got bachelor degrees or higher over here. So hey, you can have a bachelor degree or higher and not know how to spell my last name. Right. It's just it's just a different name. <laughs> right. that. But 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 feel free to look look me up, man. I'm I'm I accept all friend requests for the most part. And I'm all about collaboration and, and uplifting. So that's dope, man. I'm I want to say too, like that's how you build the communities too. Like like you said, just give an opportunity when you can. And like he said, you can't hire everybody, but like other people will see what you're doing and start and start to emulate that. I believe um, the right ones will, and that's how it gets. It just has to be a snowball. Like it just keep rolling, rolling, rolling. Do what thing I say is, don't wait, don't wait at all. You have a thought to do something. You have a thought about collaboration. Don't wait at all. I'm not one of those people that wait. So if you reach out to me, you're like, hey, I want to meet you. Let's meet up. This time the third, let's keep talking, let's keep the dialogue going. Boom, yeah. let's do it. Let's do it. So yeah. It's not now to win, man. Like that's the thing. Like why why do we basically? So no very dope. Appreciate you, Andrew, man. We definitely gotta have you back on. Um appreciate appreciate y'all letting me be on. Of course, bro. Of course, of course. We're gonna really quickly get into our thirst of the week. This is where we celebrate black women out here just doing their thing being all dope and melanated and beautiful and everything. Um, this week, we have the lovely Melodic Tones, who is a singer and songwriter uh, right here in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, she has killed numerous shows all over the city. Um, I've seen her at, um, what was that? Uh, what was that show? It was like a soul, it's like an R&B and soul bar. I can't remember. It's not open anymore. But anyway, 
She's been out here for a hot minute. Um, she has an album out called Detox. Very dope stuff. Um, she also dropped a single with Will's baby mama, uh, Rennie Rucci, uh, late last year. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> called Let Me Know. Uh, it's kind of R&B, kind of popish. Um, some of the joints that she does, very, very lively. As you can see, she's fine as hell. Um, you can find her music all over Spotify, Tidal, Apple, and Beatport. You can find her IG at I am melodic, spelled M-E-L-O-D-I-K. And um, yeah, check her out, man, because she she's been out here popping for a hot minute. So yeah, man, that is our show today, man. So thank you again, Andrew. Appreciate you and your luxurious hair. Definitely appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're really nice too, man. <laughs> hey, thank you, bro. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> Um, definitely check out uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, y'all, when it comes out. Uh, uh, on HBO, February 12th. Check it out. Let us know what y'all think. And um, we'll see y'all next show, man. Thank y'all so much again. Look down. Look down.